guys, we are in Galatians chapter 5, and we are looking particularly at verses 22 and 23. We've decided to camp out on the life of the Spirit, because most of the time when people read Galatians, they only think of those first four chapters where Paul is laying out the first major mystery of the faith as we've seen, which is that we have a substitute who has stood in our place, who has taken on the wrath of God, and by whose righteousness we are forever, finally, fully uh, justified. But Galatians also has to do with the life of the Spirit. So we have slowed down in, in Galatians 5 to look at the life of the Spirit. And the one who has the Spirit lives a different life, a life that's contrary to the life of the flesh, which is the life we would normally live unaided by the saving grace of God. The life of the flesh is common to all men, everywhere, every nation, every culture, every generation. The life of the Spirit is peculiar to the people of God who know Christ intimately and personally and in whose life God has come to live and reign. So let's look at verse 22 where the apostle says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. All right? So we've seen that not only does the cross of Jesus Christ take away the penalty of our sin and justify us, but the cross of Jesus Christ takes away the power of sin. In other words, we crucify not just uh, the uh, sin, our sins on the cross, not only are they crucified and put away from us, but our sinful nature is increasingly conquered by the cross. That's what's being taught us by the life of the Spirit. And we see that the Spirit in our lives bears fruit. So just like a tree, if you're an apple tree, you're going to bear apples. If you're a spiritual man, you're going to bear the, bear the fruit of the Spirit. And, of course, this is not an exhaustive list in verses 22 and 23. There are many traits of the Spirit because there are many attributes of God. And that's what the fruit of the Spirit is. The fruit of the Spirit is what we call the communicable attributes of God. God has many attributes, and you can summarize them into His incommunicable attributes and His communicable attributes. For example, uh, if you look in the rear of your Bible, you'll find, I think it's question number seven, something like that in the shorter catechism. Uh, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Those are three incommunicable attributes. You're not infinite, you're not eternal, at least not eternal past, your eternal future, and you're not unchangeable. We know that uh, because your very na- outer nature is wasting away. So we're not infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, but He is. So those are incommunicable attributes of God. They apply to Him only. But then the confession goes on to say, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Those are what we call communicable attributes. He has being, we have being. He has holiness, there's a way in which we have holiness. He has goodness, we've seen we have goodness. So he, is, he has incommunicable attributes and communicable attributes. The communicable attributes are the fruit of the Spirit. So this is just another way in verses 22 and 23 of speaking of the communicable attributes of God. And that's what it means to walk in the Spirit, is that we take everything from God we can take. 
and we become like Him in His communicable attributes. We don't become gods because only God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. But we become sons of God by taking on those traits that can be communicated to us. Now today, we want to look particularly at the whole idea of faithfulness. Now, uh, some of you who are old enough to have cut your teeth on the King James Version, you may have memorized this verse. And when you did, you memorized it not as faithfulness, but as faith. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith. Well, the reason is it's the same word for faith or faithfulness. It's interesting. Both Old Testament and New Testament, the Hebrew word and the Greek word, are used interchangeably, which tells us something about the nature of faith itself. When you put your trust in God, you become trustworthy. When you put your faith in God, you become faithful. The key to faithfulness is believing. That's what the very word faithfulness comes from, believing. But if you'll look at Webster, we can see uh, the definition that's in common use and which also is included in the word faithfulness or faith uh, in the scriptures. Uh, Webster says about the adjective faithful that uh, it is steadfast, being steadfast in affection or allegiance, loyal, firm in adherence to promises or in observance of duty. So if I say I'm going to do something, I do it. That is, I uh, and firm in my adherence to my promises. Or if I have a duty, and we all do have duties, if we fulfill our duties, we are faithful. So that's, I think, a very good definition of the adjective faithful. But faithful also is a noun, the faithful. And Webster says, and this is, of course, is a 1960 version of Webster's that I had in high school. I still use that same dictionary. So maybe Webster wouldn't say this anymore. But in common parlance, everybody used to understand that the faithful were church members who are in full communion and good standing with the church. Those are the faithful. And that comes right from the Bible. The Bible calls us the faithful. That's our, that's our very uh, nomenclature for the church. Now, let's, let's look at the, the idea of faithfulness because of its great significance for us. Let me, let me give you an example. If you uh, take your car to get fixed today, uh, and you hand it over to the mechanic, and then he hands it back to you, and he charges you $250, and the car still sputters just like it did when you take it in there. Uh, and you, you take it back to the desk, and you say, you know what, uh, you all didn't do a thing. And they say, well, I'm sorry, sir. I mean, we, we worked on it, and, you know, we're, we fix cars at about a 60% rate over here. We're, you know, it, uh, gosh, I mean, what would you think about a mechanic like that? He advertises 60% success, you know? What if you go to your surgeon, you know, and you you got to have your appendectomy taken care of? You're in bad shape. He says, hey, i got some really good news for you. We're successful 90% of the time here on appendectomies. <laughs> I mean, uh, what if you're in the military and uh, you're a sergeant? You know, the captain comes to you and gives you an order, and you decide not to do it, and you come back. You say, hey, what's your complaint? Where I come from, 95% obedience, that's an A- minus anyway, you know. What are you complaining about? You know, you know in the military that doesn't work. We've got to have 100% conformity. And the, some of those analogies are actually used in the scriptures that we are like men who are under orders. Uh, we are like athletes. We're like a farmer. And faithfulness means 100%. That's the calling. It's not like a buffet. You know, take the commandments of God when you want them and which ones you like. You know, hey, I like all but the 
I like all but the seventh commandment. Yeah, I want about adultery. You know, forget that. But hey, nine out of ten, that's good. Would you consider that faithful? Well, no. The Bible doesn't. So, you know, as the Marines say, semper fi, you know, semper fidelis, the always faithful. And uh, what we're called to is faithfulness. That's our very name. That is one thing that distinguishes us as the people of God. Now, here's why. Our first point is that God is faithful. And isn't that the whole point? That this is a communicable attribute. It's an attribute of God. And look, if God is working on 99% success rate, we'd be in big trouble. I don't know if anybody here fits in, you know, uh, you know the, the 1% uh, or fits in the 99%. I think maybe we'd all fit in the 1%. You know, wouldn't make it. God's 100% faithful. And so our idea of faithfulness must come from Him because that's who He is. Now, in one of the classic places to get this is in Psalm 89, if you turn there with me. And let's look at what the psalmist says about God. Now, one of the first places you get it is in the Pentateuch and right there in Exodus 34 when God is declaring His name, that He is faithful. He uses that word. So in the very declaration that God makes to Moses in Exodus 34, God declares Himself as faithful. But Psalm 89 is a classic psalm on the faithfulness of God. And uh, look how he starts out. He says, I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth, I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. Now, you notice in, in uh, Hebrew poetry that uh, Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme. Hebrew poetry has meter. It's either 4-4 uh, four, four, or it can be 3-4 if it's a lament. Uh, but it has a meter but not rhyme. But it also has uh, repetition. And so in Hebrew poetry, you'll get a thought expressed one way, and then you use different words to express the same thought to look at the same idea through a different facet of the diamond. And that's exactly what's happening here. He speaks of the Lord's great love forever, and then he speaks of faithfulness, and that's what faithfulness is. It's his great love forever. He goes on to say, I will declare, verse 2, that your love stands firm forever. So here you have really a definition of his faithfulness. His love is standing firm forever. That you established your faithfulness in heaven itself. So you see here that, that God is faithful to his own character. He has established his faithfulness in heaven itself. So God himself is faithful. It's his very nature to be faithful. Or you can look in verse 8. O Lord God Almighty, who is like you? You are mighty, O Lord, and your faithfulness surrounds you. So he wears faithfulness like a cloak. So it's God's very character. So he is faithful to himself. And secondly, in this text, you'll see he is faithful to his word. Look at verse 3. He says, you said. So notice the psalmist is going to speak of God's faithfulness. First of all, that that's God's very character. And secondly, the nature of faithfulness is when you say something, you do it. So the psalmist is reminding God, you said something and you have done it. So look at these three ways in which God is faithful. He's faithful to his, his own character. He's faithful to his word. And thirdly, notice, and this is really the heart of it here. He's faithful to His covenant with His people. We have a relationship to Him through Jesus Christ by what is known as a covenant, not a contract that can be broken, 
but a covenant that is sealed by His own blood and sealed by His Spirit forever. So we are in an eternal covenant with God. And look how he puts this in verse 3. You said, he said what? I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. So God is primarily faithful to the relationship and to the covenant of that relationship that he has made with us through the mediator, in this case, King David. And he says, I'll be faithful at covenant through the generations. Now, God is faithful. But we have many ways of testing God's faithfulness. We challenge His faithfulness. His faithfulness is indeed challenged. I know that if you're in a covenant relationship with your wife, you've been challenged in that faithfulness from many different directions. Well, so has God been challenged in His marriage to us. And let's look at some of those challenges. He is faithful, first of all, in spite of our sin. He is faithful in spite of our sin. What does 1 John 1, 9 say? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The reason that we're forgiven, the reason that we're cleansed is for one reason. God is faithful to the covenant that He made with you through His mediator, His own Son, Jesus Christ, the greater Son of David. The whole idea of the resurrection is God's faithfulness to His covenant. His mediator will not stay in the ground. He will raise up the mediator of the covenant so that He continues to mediate between God and His people. He now rules over us. He intercedes for us. He is in charge of the universe. He is the representative of the human race. Now, taken up into the very council of the Trinity Himself, Jesus Christ, because God is faithful to what He swore to us He would do. So, even in the face of our sin, God Himself is faithful and just. We are unfaithful. He is faithful to His covenant. So, in spite of our sin. Secondly, It's in spite of our weakness. Look how the psalmist puts it in Psalm 89. When he speaks of God's faithfulness, he's speaking of how God uses his strength on our behalf. And this will will come back to play in our lives. But God uses his strength. Look how the psalmist puts it. Verse 9, you rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you steal them. So you know in Old Testament times, as well as actually the time of Jesus, the pagans viewed their pagan gods in charge of the sea. That's the reason they went, the big challenge with Elijah on Mount Carmel, with Ashtaroth and Baal against Jehovah. It all had to do with rain, didn't it? Who's in charge of the sea and who's in charge of the rain? Is it Baal and Ashtaroth or is it Jehovah? Well, we'll see. The one who answers by fire is God. God answered by fire. And then after that, Elijah prayed and you saw the little fist coming up out of the sea, the beginning of a cloud. God is Lord of the sea. He's Lord of rain. He's Lord of the earth. That was what Elijah was proving to the people again to remind them God is strong. He's in, he's in charge. He not only made the creation, He's in charge of all the creation. He orders everything. He rules everything, including the waves. But then look in verse 10. Not only is He in charge of creation, He's in charge of redemption. 
And the psalmist says, you crushed Rahab like one of the slain. With your strong arm, you scattered your enemies. Who's Rahab? That, of, uh, that of course, uh, would be Egypt. Uh, you, you took on all the, all the enemies. The heavens are yours and also the earth. You founded the world and all that is in it. So God went before them and destroyed all of their enemies. So you see that God uses His strength in spite of our weaknesses. His faithfulness strengthens us in the midst of our weakness. Thirdly, God is faithful uh, in spite of our confusion. Now you can look at Lamentations 3.23. You don't need to turn there, but let me just remind you. This is where we get the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. It's in a book called Lamentations, which means to lament or to grieve or to sorrow. And why is Jeremiah lamenting? He's lamenting because Jerusalem has been absolutely wiped out. Pregnant women have had babies ripped from their wombs in their, before their very eyes, before they themselves died. People had their eyes t- taken out of their heads. People were demolished. The, every, there was no stone upon another, said Jeremiah. He was in deep despair. But then what did he say? Great is your faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. So in the midst of our despair, when everything seems to be falling apart, here's something we know. God is faithful to His covenant. Now, of course, the reason the people were sent out of Jerusalem in the first place was because of what? Their unfaithfulness. You'll find that phrase over and over again in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in 2 Chronicles. There's one reason they went to Babylon, their unfaithfulness. God disciplined them. But why was He sending them out of Jerusalem? So that He could bring them back as His faithful people. So He disciplines us. And sometimes He disciplines us so severely or life becomes so severe, we are completely confused. We do not see the hand of God's faithfulness. We do not see His faithfulness to His covenant in our lives. We say, where are you? But here's something we know. Great is your faithfulness. Your mercies are new every morning. That's what Jeremiah said. He just simply rooted his faith in something he knew for sure, that God was faithful, even though you can't see it, even though you're confused. So even though you're confused... God is not. Even though you question His faithfulness, God doesn't question His own faithfulness. Now what's really interesting in Psalm 89 is that's exactly what's going on in Psalm 89. When you start reading Psalm 89, if you look at the first two verses, it looks like a classic psalm of thanksgiving and praise. But when you begin to look at the end of Psalm 89, you realize it's not a psalm of praise at all. It's a psalm of lament. Look back on your next page, on page 900, and you'll see that he... uh, Well, let's back up just a moment. If you look at verse 19, uh, the psalmist says, Once you spoke in a vision to your faithful people, you said, I've bestowed strength on a warrior. I've exalted a young man from among the people. I have found David, my servant, with my sacred oil... I have anointed him. Verse 24, my faithful love will be with him. Verse 28, I will maintain my love to him forever and my covenant with him will never fail. I will establish his line forever, his throne as long as the heavens endure. If his sons forsake my law and do not follow my statutes, verse 33, I will not take my love from him nor will I ever betray my faithfulness. He's saying, even if the people sin, I'll never take my faithfulness away from David. I will always honor David. So it still sounds like a psalm of praise until you get to verse 38. 
Look at how this thing turns so quickly. The psalmist says, But you have rejected. You have spurned. You have been very angry with your anointed one. You have renounced the covenant with your servant and have defiled his crown in the dust, etc., etc. Verse 49, O Lord, where is your former great love which in your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, Lord, how your servant has been mocked, how I bear in my heart the taunts of all the nations, the taunts with which your enemies have mocked, O Lord, with which they have mocked every step of your anointed one. You see what the psalmist is saying? Lord, I heard what you said. You said you're going to be faithful to David. You'd never take your love away from him. Well, hey, what's going on here, God? Look at this. We're being mocked. We're being spurned. We're being destroyed. This was probably written during the exile. Look at Jerusalem, Lord. It's devastated. So what about your promises now? Look how he concludes. Praise be to the Lord forever. Amen and amen. (laughs) I don't know. Sometimes... I can't see anything that would indicate that God is being faithful to me in this life. Everything seems to be going against me. But the psalmist, he knows how to lament. He knows how to complain. But notice how he complains. He reminds God of what God has said. He reminds God of what God has done. He has made a forever covenant with his people. And he pleads on the basis of that covenant. And he simply ends up with praise and thanksgiving. He will trust the Lord. And so, gentlemen, in those times of great confusion, remember, a faithful man trusts the faithfulness of God even when you can't see it, even when you can't understand it because you learn something, that your faithfulness is coming from your faith in the faithfulness of God. The fruit of the Spirit comes from the Spirit. Faithfulness comes from faith in God. Now, let me ask, was this psalmist's faith justified did this psalmist's faith in the faithfulness of God come to fruition was David's line honored has David's dynasty been established forever is David's line flourishing today did David have a son who took the throne and has kept the dynasty forever and ever is David's son greater than David was Is David's son going to rule not over one little piece of real estate over in Palestine, but is David's son going to take the Davidic kingdom and rule over the entire cosmos? I asked you, was the psalmist trust in the faithfulness of God warranted? Was it justified? Well, you have your answer by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater son of David, who has forever established the line of David. And now everything God has done with us in history, your personal history, And in world history, everything he's done has been justified. And everything in the future will be justified. Because God is faithful to his covenant. And when God in his faithfulness to his covenant is working things out in history with sinful men, even his own sons, he must discipline his sons. And he must use severe measures to be sure that we're kept safe in the covenant. And that's what's happening with all the things that we face in this life. God is faithful. Now, secondly, we want to see from this word faithfulness that not only is God faithful, but saints are faithful. That's our very name. And we are to be faithful like God is faithful. We're to grow in that likeness. And I want to mention three ways in which this is to happen as we spend the last half of our hour together. First of all, 
Saints are faithful in every way. We're wholeheartedly faithful. Everything about us, not 60%, not 80%, not 95%, not 99%. We're faithful in every way. And I'd like to mention three ways in which that works. First of all, we're faithful in our actions. And if you'll turn with me to Matthew 25, you'll get a classic a classic story about faithfulness. And here you have it, the parable of the talents. A man goes on a journey. This is page 1589. A man goes on a journey. He called his servants and entrusted his property to them, to the one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Verse 19. This is chapter 25, verse 19 of Matthew. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, Well done. Look at these words. Good. A unique word we studied last time. Where in the Bible do you find anybody called good? Very rarely. Notice the master calls the servant a good servant. But notice he also calls him a faithful servant. Well done. And the word well done is just, it's, 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 uh, if I remember correctly, it's one word in the Greek. It's, it's, it's two letters. Eu, E-U. Epsilon, Upsilon, ew, well done or well, good and faithful servant. Uh, you have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Now look at this. You've been faithful with a few things. The great uh, early church preacher Chrysostom, that they called the golden-tongued preacher, said on one occasion, Faithfulness in little things is a big thing. And gentlemen, you've got to remember that. Some of you are bored with your work, frankly. Some of you are bored with your life. And, and, you, and one reason you're bored with it, it's lost its significance to you. Your job has lost your significance to you. And really, in some ways, some of you, your life has lost significance to you. Let me tell you something. From the perspective of being a son of God, what you do with your finances today, in, in God's opinion, is just as important as what the wealthiest man in the world is doing with his finances today. What you do is just as important as what Bill Gates does. There's no difference in God's view between what you do with your money, the few dollars you're dealing with today probably, and the millions of dollars that Bill Gates will deal with. No difference at all. To God... What's important is your faithfulness in the little things. And look, he says here, the, the man got five talents. He got more than anybody else. But in God's view, it's just little stuff. What, to, what is a billion dollars to God? It's peanuts. It's little things. So no matter how much you have, it's little things. And he says, you've been faithful in little things. Now take some big things. And what you and I have to realize is that we, we measure things here relatively. And we think, well, if I've only got a few hundred thousand, that's not very much. So-and-so has millions, so I don't have much. We think this way. A Christian refuses to think that way. He cancels all those lessons he's learned. And he says, whatever God has put in my charge, that's a big thing. 
because it's reflective of my love for God. And that's what a steward does. He happily stewards whatever he has. And God says here to him, you have been faithful with a few things. doesn't matter how much you have, it's just a few things. Be faithful in it, and I will put you in charge of many things. Do you realize when you go to heaven, if you have a longing to have power, <laughs> you're going to get all the power you want. And I have a feeling that the hierarchy in heaven... I mean, you can just go as high as you want to. You want to, you want to rule, you, you know, you want to rule a few, you know, asteroids, you can have that. If you want to rule a few solar systems, you can have that. If you'd like a couple of galaxies, we've got plenty of those. You want to rule those. So you can rule whatever you want to. I'll, I'll let you, I'll let you rule whatever you want. If you'll be faithful in a few things and then come and share your master's happiness. Do you see the reward of God for the faithful? So just be faithful in a few things. I, I have a good friend who's, a, who's been a lawyer for 20 years, and he, he told me, he said, you know, uh, I just thought that when I was in law school, I'd be doing much more important things. He said, you know, now I go and I charge every 15 minutes, and I try to charge it to somebody, and, and you know, <laughs> that's the whole idea, of course. Sometimes it's half 15 minutes, maybe sometimes it's seven and a half minutes, got to charge to somebody. How many billable hours do you have? He said, you know what it's become for me? He said, every time when I go to work, I put my head on the desk about 7 o'clock in the morning and I pray, God, help me to be faithful in the little things. He said, because, Sandy, after all, you want to know what my job is like? Now, I know all you lawyers are not like this. This is what he told me. He said, I'm a glorified clerk. (laughs) I get paid more than store clerks, but I'm a clerk. He said, I just pray every day, God, make me faithful in the little things. Here's a man who's been in his job long enough, frankly, got bored with it. Actually, my friend left law and went into leverage buyouts. And he had a lot more fun because he was losing way much more money in leverage buyouts than he ever was a lawyer. But, he, but it was exciting. It was exciting. He wasn't bored anymore, you know. In fact, he was so unbored he couldn't sleep at night after he went over to this other business. But anyway, here's a man who had been in his work long enough. It was boring him. And he just, but he realized the danger of that. He realized the danger of dismissing the importance of the little things in his life. Faithful men don't dismiss whatever's in front of them. Faithful men realize their charge is what's given them by the providence of God. And it's just as important as what Bill Gates has been given to him to be responsible for. So we must be responsible in all of our actions. And notice something else that's very significant here to prove the point. He, he, the man in verse 22 with two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I've gained two more. And his master replied. Now, check the words... In verse 23, and compare them to verse 21, and you'll find the words are identical. Which proves the point. doesn't matter whether you have five talents or two talents. The Lord's response to you is the same. Here's a man who had 40% of what another man owned, and it wasn't how much he gained. He gained two more talents. It was that he was faithful. That's what the Lord delights in. So just, look, if you don't have a whole lot to manage, just thank God, you know, I've I go into these big libraries and I just, I just can't believe that somebody else has cleaned this place up. Somebody else owns this thing. I get to go in and use any book I want to. I don't pay a cent for it. And people put all these books in the right order. I read them, throw them back in the bin, and somebody else puts them right back there on the shelf in the perfect order and I can find them again. I mean, just celebrate, you know. Somebody else is running this for me. And so you don't have to worry about how much you have. Just be faithful with what you have. And you'll notice the response is the same. But then when you get to the man with one talent, uh, notice the man who'd received one talent. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man and so on. 
and I was afraid and hid it. You wicked, verse 26, you wicked and lazy servant. There you have it. The opposite of faithfulness is wickedness and laziness. And believe me, the Lord notices it and takes offense in it. Well, secondly, when we're going to come back there so you can leave your finger there. I want to come back to that verse in just a moment. First of all, it's in all of our actions. Secondly, it's in our affection. And in Nehemiah 9, 8, Nehemiah refers to Abraham. And he says he was faithful from his heart. So faithfulness comes from your affections. That's the reason that as the Proverbs say, Solomon says, guard your heart. You've got to guard your heart. Affection for your wife begins with your heart, your intentionality toward her. Faithfulness to your church begins in the affections of your heart toward her. What are you thinking about her? What ideas are you rolling over in your mind about her? Your faithfulness to your children or to your parents. It begins in your heart. And so it is with God. But then thirdly, notice if we're being faithful in every way, it also involves our belief system, our convictions. Now go back to chapter 25 of Matthew. And I want you to notice something. In chapter 25... Look at verse 24. This is the unfaithful man. And this is a really helpful, insightful description of the mindset of the unfaithful servant. Someone who maybe has professed their faith and they're in the church, but they're unfaithful. Here's why they're unfaithful. Look at verse 24. The man says, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, and gathering where you had not scattered seed, so I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here's what belongs to you. Here's the attitude. God, I really didn't believe your promise that you would reward a man who's faithful to you. You said, bring the tithes into the storehouse and I'll open the windows of heaven and pour out so much blessing you won't have room to contain it. I didn't really believe that. So I kept the tithe to myself because I didn't believe that there would be more blessing by tithing than not tithing. Oh, I know Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. I thought that was just a nice little saying that kind of encouraged people to be a little bit more generous, but I didn't really believe it was more blessed really to give money than to get money. Because you basically are a governor, God. You basically rule the universe, and we know whose interest you rule it for, yourself. And you take from people who work hard and use it for your glory. And so you glorify yourself at the expense of your servants. Now, gentlemen, the reason that Jesus gave us this parable is that he was revealing our hearts. And the reason he reveals our hearts is because we don't. We we don't ever say this stuff out loud. But Jesus says what we're thinking. And what Jesus is saying is that's what you're thinking. When you pull away from your obligations, your duties before God, when you pull away from the promises you make, when you profess your faith in Him, that's what's going on. You really don't trust Him. You really don't believe His promises. That's at the root of unfaithfulness. It's lack of faith. It's lack of believing His rich and wondrous promises. Now, we've seen then that saints are faithful in every way. Our actions, our affections, our beliefs. It's in what we do, it's what we feel, it's what we say, it's what we believe. But secondly, notice that the faithful man, if he's imitating God, is faithful in every relationship. Every relationship. Faithfulness 
applies to every single relationship that we have. First of all, to God. And we won't have time to look at this, but in Numbers 12, 7, the godly man is described as a faithful man. What is a faithful man? He's a, he's a man who gives God all of his heart. He is, first of all, faithful to all God's commandments, not part of them, not nine out of ten commandments, but he embraces everything that God has said and says, that's going to be my life. The life that God has commanded, I receive. The life God has, in his providence, given me, I receive. The gifts that he's given me, I receive them. And I don't resent the fact that I only have two and not five talents. I'm just going to take my two talents and I'm going to go invest them. I'm going to be faithful to the Lord in what he gave me. Now, one way I suggest you look at this is to think of your faithfulness to God, both doctrinally and ethically. You can look at those two categories. What is it that you're embracing? Do you believe the Bible in every way? And are you embracing the ethic of the Bible? And our faithfulness to God involves both what we believe and what we do. Now, you'll notice that the Galatians were particularly fickle. This is the reason for this letter. They were fickle on their belief system about the cross itself and about how we're justified before God. And they were falling off along the way. They were unfaithful to the gospel. So the first thing is be faithful to the gospel. And that's what Paul spends the first four chapters establishing. That he says, if an angel from heaven comes and gives you that gospel, then you tell that angel to go to hell. Because what I gave you as the, the apostle is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave it to me personally. Guard it. Protect it. Believe it. Put it into practice. So the first thing we do in our relationship with God is embrace everything that he said, everything that is revealed in the Bible. And then secondly... The Galatians, because they had abandoned the doctrine of the gospel, they had abandoned the lifestyle of the gospel. They were warring with each other. They were having factions and divisions. They were taking advantage of each other. And that's the works of the flesh that you see earlier in verse 19 of chapter 5. That's how they were living. So they were fickle in their doctrine. They were fickle in their practice. And Paul says, the one who has the spirit in his life bears the fruit of faithfulness, faithful to the gospel, faithful to the Christian lifestyle. So that's one way that you can look at it. Another way that helps me sometimes is that when I think about my faithfulness to God, I think once again, He's faithful in covenant to me. I want to be faithful in covenant to Him. And what is that covenant? Some of you who are Presbyterians and maybe some other traditions, when we join the church, we take membership vows. And those of you who are uh, in the Presbyterian Church, you can just think of those five membership vows you take. There it summarizes covenant life. You confess to be a sinner. You confess to trust in Christ alone. You profess to seek to live a holy life. You profess to participate in the work and the worship of the church to the best of your ability. And you profess to submit to the government and discipline of the church and promote its purity and peace. Five vows. There you have it. Those are your covenantal vows. And so sometimes I'll just go back to the vows I swore before God and His people. This is what, you know, the psalmist said, God, you said you'll make covenant with David. I go back to what I said. And I remember what I promised when I joined the church. And I just take a quick look and say, okay, Sandy, are you walking in the covenant that you made with God? Or I can look at my ordination vows. And there are 10 ordination vows. Some of you have been ordained as elders or deacons. And you've taken public promises. And I look at those things and say, 
Okay, let's look. Am I defending the gospel? Am I setting it forth regardless of persecution that comes to me? Do I love the church from good motive and all the rest? Just look at those vows you're taking. Go back and revisit those things. There is a a vow, a covenant with the people to lead them as an ordained person in his church. Look at those vows. And we can see the disaster that befalls upon us all when those vows are broken. You know, in yesterday's paper, I haven't looked at today's paper yet, but of course the, the main headline was about the Roman Catholic priest abuse of children, not only uh, in Europe, but right here in Memphis. And you see that the church broke its vow of faithfulness to the Lord. And here you have it with the clergy. We promise to take care of God's people. And here you have literally hundreds of priests, thousands of priests around the world through the past century who have, not, who have been taking advantage of young members sexually. I mean, what could be further from faithfulness? And you can see the total scandal that it is when people break their vows to the Lord. And, of course, this whole thing is aggravated in the Roman Catholic Church because it has to do with children. And it's, it's illegal. It's not only immoral, it's, it's also illegal. But in case uh, most of us here are Protestants uh, or have a Protestant background, in case you're getting on your high horse, let me tell you something. Protestants, Protestants have been hiding sexual abuse for a long, long time in, in this very church right here. In fact, every church I've served has in its recent history a case of sweeping under the rug a sexual scandal among its leaders. Every church I've served. It's human nature. We're so traumatized by the scandal, we don't know what to do with it except to hide it. And in this case, in the Roman Catholic case, even at the, the risk of being thrown in jail and losing hundreds of millions of, the church, of church money. So what do we do? When we're unfaithful, we hide, just like Adam in the Garden of Eden. Now, I'm happy to say that uh, I've noticed over the years that our, our leaders here have taken some steps to reverse anything in our history, and I hope your churches are doing the same. There's an answer for individual unfaithfulness. It's called repentance. Repentance and faith. Trust the Lord. Where does our real credit for faithfulness come from? Not from our personal faithfulness, but from Christ's faithfulness. He won victory for us. His faithfulness trumps all of our unfaithfulness. So now what do we do? Well, I've noticed here in this church just over the past 15 years that I've been here, we've had a case where we've had to defrock an elder. We had an occasion where we had to excommunicate an elder. And I suggest that churches get hold of the idea again of what it means to be faithful. And what happens in the clergy union uh, is that when one of our colleagues gets in trouble, well, we'll we'll just sweep it under the rug and take care of it. Is that love, gentlemen? No. It's a poor substitute for love. It looks like loyalty. It looks like faithfulness to your friends, but it's high-handed unfaithfulness to the Lord and to your friend because the wounds of a faithful friend are faithful wounds. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And so we confront one another in faithfulness to God Go back to your vows, your membership vows. Go back to what it means to be a follower of Christ. Go back to your profession of faith and remember what it means that we are first of all faithful to Him. And that's where the church is going to be faithful because the the leaders to begin with are faithful. So if you're a church leader, 
you must see that the will of the Lord is carried out in your midst, particularly with you leaders, starting with the pastors and then all the lay leaders. There must be a commitment to faithfulness no matter what it costs you because that alone is what pleases the Lord and that alone will solve the scandal in both the Roman church and in the Protestant church. Notice secondly that involves where we've made human covenants to wife and family. And in Malachi chapter 2, we studied this some years ago, we see that God says, how could you be unfaithful to the partner of your youth? Do you realize that when you made a vow to your wife, what did you say? I, Sandy, take you, Allison, to be my wedded wife, and I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband as long as you cook well and give me good sex. (laughs) Pastor left that part out. He said, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. So my faithfulness to my wife doesn't come from her faithfulness to me. The book of Hosea will teach you that. My faithfulness to my wife comes from God's faithfulness to me. And I'm imitating His faithfulness to an unfaithful people. So if my wife is not so hot, well, hey, I get a chance to imitate Christ who is faithful to a not-so-hot preacher, me. So we are faithful in the covenant to our wife because we're playing the role. Read your script. You're playing the role of Christ. And you love her. You give her strength even when she's weak. You forgive her sins even when she's wicked. You present her faultless and blameless before the Lord on the last day. That's marriage. And that's family to your children. Sexual fidelity. Loving, providing, serving, encouraging your wife. It's all part of the covenant faithfulness. Notice thirdly it involves your friends. And all you need to do is to turn to 1 Samuel 18 and 1 Samuel 20 and you'll see this. Jonathan loved David as himself. And we are told that Jonathan made a covenant with David. A covenant of brotherhood. Do you realize that when you're in Christ, you have a Jonathan-David covenant with every other man who's in Christ? And we're to be living out that kind of covenant faithfulness so that Jonathan, who had the right to the throne from his father Saul, was giving up the throne for David because he recognized in David the anointing of God. And he loved David as himself. He wanted David to be king rather than himself because it was clear that David was gifted for it, that David was anointed for it. And it infuriated his father Saul, who was a selfish man. But Jonathan gave up the kingdom, the earthly kingdom, for the heavenly kingdom of pleasing the Lord in brotherly covenant. And we've got to be committed to one another. In in fact, including rebuking one another, wounding one another when necessary. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And David and Jonathan had that covenant. That's what friendship is really like. It, It is one of caring and sharing and mutual accountability. Then notice, fourthly, we're faithful to the church. And you could look in Colossians and see this word faithful over and over again in these four verses I've mentioned. We're the faithful. We're faithful to the Lord. We're faithful to one another. We're faithful to our duties. And, you know, what does this involve? Let me just mention a few things in church where I feel like guys really slip 
in their faithfulness and they've forgotten what they're doing. Maybe you're bored with church. Maybe you're, maybe you're tired. I mean, I, I know guys who, who get to be about 50, you know, early 50s, and they say, here's what they say. Ah, you know, my kids, they're up out of youth group now, and they're off in college. I'm, I'm just going to take a break. You know, I put my time in. I, you know, my wife worked in the nursery. I helped with the youth group. My kids are up and out now. I want to say, why in the world were you ever in church in the first place? Was it for your kids? So you just you wanted your kids to have some sort of a spiritual educational experience? Well, what about you? Were, you? were you never aware that your father was waiting for you and took delight in your walking through the door and worshiping him? Did that never occur to you? Did it ever occur to you that he called you to love these people even if they're not blood relatives, that they are spiritual relatives and they're your eternal family where sometimes your blood family is not your eternal family? Did that ever occur to you? So you were in it as long as you were kind of helping your own blood family somehow. That was what church was to you. That's what happens to a lot of people. And we go through different stages where we justify our behavior, we pull away, we get our feelings hurt, or there's some scandal about the church. Well, there's my excuse. You know, it's made up a bunch of hypocrites. Instead of devoting ourselves to the church, listen, all you have to do is read the Bible and you'll find the church has always been a scandal. It's a scandal. The gospel's a scandal because the gospel saves people like me, a big royal hypocrite. And God has saved me and increasingly hopefully making me less hypocritical. But that's the whole scandal of the gospel. That's what the church is about. So you get in there and you help people. And you can become one of the hypocrites too. Come on, join us. We'll, we'll receive you. But what does it involve? certainly attending to the highest goal of the church, which is to worship God. It just amazes me how guys can come in and out. You know, they go to church for a while. Well, maybe it's raining outside. Or it's cold. Or I was up a little late last night watching Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live, Sunday Morning Dead. Yeah. That, it's just, a, I mean, I have to say, I just don't understand it because, because it all comes from your heart. If you have a heart for God, you want to be where He visits with His people. It just amazes me and it saddens me. Guys who are unfaithful in their worship. Or what about your giving? Especially now, you're tempted not to give. You've got excuses not to give from most men's perspective. God wants you to be faithful whether it's a lot or a little. Just be faithful in what you got. Do you realize that most of the people in this world would love to have your estate in its worst condition? And they would consider themselves wealthy. And yet we, in our wealth, when our wealth changes a little bit, we come up with all kinds of excuses not to be charitable. And we do the same thing in terms of serving our brothers. But it all comes from our heart. That's what the Lord wants more than anything else, is our affection that's expressed in all these things. Well, we need to be faithful to our employer. And that involves obviously being honest and having integrity and giving a hard day's work for a day's wage. And it involves guarding the gospel and standing up for what's right in our workplace. That's being faithful. You're the Lord's representative. You're the chaplain to your workplace. If you're a believer, you're the chaplain. You're the agent of God. You're the missionary. You're the salt that seasons the entire meat. You're the light in the darkness. You're it. That's what it means to be a disciple. Are you taking that role seriously in the workplace? Or are you, like most of us, just thinking about your, whether you're, you're deriving personal pleasure from your workplace? Do you have any sense of the mission 
It's in your workplace. Be faithful to it. And in your community. We're told that we're taken to the community to bring shalom to the community in Jeremiah 29. We're to be those who practice love and, and justice and faithfulness, Jesus says in Matthew 23. That's our role in this community is to bring peace, shalom, justice, equity, caring for the poor. That's the reason we're still here. Otherwise, we can go on to heaven. But the reason we're left here is to care for the broken in the world. That's our duty. So our faithfulness involves fulfilling our duties. You may not like some of those duties. You may prefer other kinds of duties. But you don't pick your duties. Your duties are picked by your Father in heaven. And that's one of them. What about to the nation? Romans 13, we're supposed to vote. We're supposed to pay taxes. We're supposed to lay down our lives at times for our nation. Simplify indeed. What about you with your nation? And then lastly, in these last 60 seconds, in every circumstance. I just encourage you to look at these three circumstances. Here are the circumstances that cause us at times to be unfaithful or give us occasion for unfaithfulness. First of all, stress. But we're faithful in times of stress. And look at the example of Timothy and uh, Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2. And in Revelation 2, uh, the Spirit says to the churches, be faithful to death. So don't let stress become an excuse for unfaithfulness. Or secondly, in times of temptation. And all you have to do is look at the, the situation with Joseph. He was mightily tempted. Potiphar's wife, no doubt, was a good-looking chick. Potiphar was like the head of the secret service for Pharaoh. And believe me, he had a good-looking wife, probably a trophy wife. And Joseph was a handsome man. He had rippling muscles. He had a good build, the Bible tells us. She wanted him. And he, he was sorely tempted. But out of faithfulness to God and faithfulness to his duty, he was able to resist. And lastly, in times of prosperity, and here we have a negative example, and that's the one of Solomon. Solomon got caught not by the temptations of poverty and not by the temptation of stress, but by the temptation of prosperity, all the money he had, all the power he had, all the wisdom that he had. And he squandered it at the end of his life. So one of the things that can make you the most unfaithful is your success. Isn't that odd? This, you'd think it'd be just the opposite, but the history of fallen humanity is that when we receive material blessings, they often become the occasion for our unfaithfulness. Gentlemen, the key to faithfulness is to contemplate God's faithfulness to you in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Moses was faithful over the house of God in the Old Testament. We're told in the New Testament, Jesus Christ is faithful not only as a servant, but as a son over the whole house of God. And our standing before God is based not upon our performance, but upon His. And it's because of that that we enter into life in our broken way and seek to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ in His faithfulness, that His name and His love and His faithfulness may be honored and glorified forever and ever. Amen. Father, thank You for Your faithfulness to us in the covenant. And we pray that as Your Spirit now lives in us, and moves us to live this very day, that we may be the faithful, faithful men who are fulfilling every duty you've given us and who are uh, taking hold of every promise you've made, but who are fulfilling every promise we made.
by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.